Today's lesson text comes from the Gospel according to Mark, the sixth chapter, verses one through six. Now Jesus left that place and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed with him. And on the Sabbath, Jesus began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded. They said, Where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? Is not this the son of the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at Jesus. Then he said to them, Prophets are not without honor except in their hometown and among their own kin and in their own house. And he could do no deeds of power there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. And Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray through the words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts, we may bring honor and glory to you. Amen. So a character that's probably not too popular from Greek mythology, and I don't expect you to know him, is Daedalus. Yeah, we all know that one. We learned it in school. Probably not. But his son, Icarus, is very familiar to most of us, and... Don't worry, I'm not being too pretentious. Those of you who like Iron Maiden and Heavy Metal are probably familiar with Icarus, the boy that had wax wings and flew too close to the sun and it burned and melted off. Now, we typically tell the story of Icarus to say, don't get too full of yourselves. You may have a great invention, you may be soaring high, but honey, it's a long way down from the top. That, however, is not how the Greeks meant the story. See, Daedalus, Icarus' dad, Daedalus, sorry, was a famous tinkerer and inventor. And buried in the Greek story of Icarus is a story of Daedalus' apprentice, a genius child named Perdix. Now, the only important thing to know about Daedalus and his apprentice, besides the fact their names are kind of funny and hard to say, is it was a story of the typical relationship of a master who is jealous of his student's abilities. And the story takes a wicked turn that Daedalus takes his apprentice up on the top of Mount Athos, asks him to come look over the edge with him, and proceeds to push him off. And the genius student, the smarter inventor, goes plummeting down. And Daedalus says, well, he had an accident. But the implication of adding that story into the story of Icarus is, Daedalus had killed the apprentice who might have warned it, you know, the sun's pretty hot, and those wings are made out of wax. So the original message there was much more like the American legend we like to call the crabs in buckets. 
something business leaders like to say a lot is you have a crowd in a bucket mentality. And to just give that story real quick, a man is out watching a fisherman catch crabs. And he notices that the crabs are in a bucket and there's no lid on there. And the crabs are very big. They can very easily crawl out. And the man asks him, well, why don't you put a lid on there? And the fisherman tells him, oh, it's okay. The crabs will reach up and grab whichever one is escaping and yank it back down. Brothers and sisters, we Christians are not to have a crab in the bucket mentality. And while I was reading this story of Jesus and the fact that his hometown held him in such ill repute because, well, he's just like us. Where is he get off being the big shot pastor? It reminded me very much of stories from my own hometown where someone had made it and decided to go back. One of the core virtues that the medieval church tried to instill and is famous from Kempis' Imitation of Christ is being happy at the success and blessings or what we would perhaps say in most bad theology, other people's love. Christians are called to be people who celebrate when something good happens to someone else. That is not the spirit that was on display in this passage. Jesus is preaching, and the first thing anyone says is, where did he get all this? What's been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? So how come he prays and he gets answers? How come Jesus is the one that God talks to and gives all the answers? I'm the same as him, and I need to know his family, his brothers, and everything else. It's kind of a crab in the bucket mentality. And Jesus, I think this one actually was one of the few things that, that stuck with him. Because it comes through his teaching more than once. In Matthew 20, we have the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Where God's shown as a vintner who goes out and hires people in the morning, the afternoon, and the evening. And he pays them all the same thing. One ten, you got ten. One ten, you got ten. Well, when it's done, and God is paying out the wages, the folks that have been working at the start of the day get upset that God was giving the same amount to the folks who started at the end of the day. And God gives a poignant rebuke. In verse 15, he says, Don't I have the right to do what I want with my money? But more importantly, he adds an or. Or is always just turn screws. Or, are you envious because I'm jealous? See, I, I think this is important to bring up because how we relate to others and their success and their blessings ultimately relates to how we view God. Take the story of the prodigal son. Another time Jesus touches on this same exact theme. The prodigal son goes off. He repents. He comes home. The father is happy. showers him with blessing. But we have the older brother over here. And what does the older brother say? You never give me anything. You never give me any of the special care. If I had messed up, you might have not treated me the same. It's that same mentality, and it gets to the point that the people in Nazareth had this problem, and it wasn't just a people problem. It wasn't just that they were nasty and they should have been happy for other people and we need to have some saccharine niceness thing going on. 
what was going on was very fact they couldn't see past Jesus' social status or the fact they knew him personally. And in that, they ultimately missed God. This was an expensive overlook for those people in Nazareth. And we can see the attitude if we parse the Greek a little bit. In verse 3, probably almost everyone's Bible says, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? But almost all the textual evidence proves that translators just translate it that way because it fits kind of a Catholic ideal. The Greek is formulated to put Jesus down. When they call him the son of the carpenter, but only name his mother the son of Mary, that's masculating in that culture. And it's also kind of a hit at Jesus' legitimality and the whole Christmas story going on there. So they see Jesus, they hear him preaching, and the only thing they can think is, who are you, buddy? We know you. Now the application of this one is a little tricky. It gets political by nature because more than one person is interacting with each other, and in some ways, I don't care. But it also is like all things, a teaching that can go too far in the other way. We are called to be happy and celebrate the success and blessings and the providence that God supports in others. There is a problem that I catch in many of my evangelical friends, and sometimes even in my own heart, that that is not always the case. Sometimes you hear my friends talk, it's like they don't want people to make money. And we do just all have to watch the fact that, like the man who's running the vineyard, it is up to the owner of the fast food company what he pays his employees. But it is very common on the lips of Christians that, well, he's just a burger flipper. He shouldn't earn that much. We get upset that someone is having success and making a living. Or say, someone pulls that lucky monopoly card in life, bank makes the error in your favor. They have a windfall. Normally, we tend to look at that and go, well, they didn't deserve it. We always are skating on that commandment one of the ten is do not covet. And there's just a tendency in and of ourselves to say, I see him succeeding and I wish it was me. And it's just human nature and something we have to watch for because, well, we can't care for every single event that happens on the globe that would drive you nuts. It is not free of the consequences of sin that we don't care that your dog died. We only care that our dog died. And we individualize and we pull everything in. And that's what they were doing to Jesus. How come Mary got the special son? How come Jesus is the rabbi? I know his brothers. I know his sisters. I grew up in the same town. How come he's doing better than me? And I think this is also something that most of us can relate to because it's probably happened to you as well. When you are living in your family or you are living in your hometown, especially on issues of religious conversion, the familiarity can work against you. There are many brothers and sisters who they have a come to Christ moment and are totally transformed. But what would be their response if they came into the church? Mm. 
It's you. Didn't we used to drink behind the bleachers in high school together? Weren't you the one that beat up Billy Thompson or whoever? That familiarity makes that forgiveness impossible for people, but at the same time, in that same congregation, their neighbor may walk in and they have trouble forgetting them, but they wouldn't if it was a stranger. If it was someone they didn't know, who came up here and said, Hi, I'm Pastor Paul and I've been forgiven, you'll be like, You've been forgiven and I have too. So this one always catches home because this just covetousness and not being willing to see the success and blessings and sources of joy for others is something that we should be joyful to actually gets worse the more intimate you get. In a weird way, it's, it's easier for us to, to celebrate the fact Bezos has another million bucks that he probably doesn't even notice than it is for us to celebrate the fact our brother got a $3 raise. And that cuts at intimacy and everything else. And just to kind of wrap up, we have to watch Justifying that. Because another part of David Dallas's story is he justifies pushing his apprentice off the cliff. And, it, and this is where where it's tough because the crab from the viewpoint of a crab has a very justifiable reason he reaches up and grabs the other guy's leg. He's trying to pull himself out. Crabs in the wild don't go find each other and yank them themselves down. They do it because they're in a bucket. We Christians often can justify coveting and having a viewpoint that I don't think he deserves it because of the various buckets we need to place into life. And the worst thing we can do is try to back them up with our higher virtues. Well, if the world was fair, so justice is the reason I'm not happy for your success. We have to watch that one. Now, again, I'm going to say, just because I have my own personality, I tend to be kind of a meaner person, so it's easier for me to point out how mean people think. There are the folks that are a little bit too nice. And it is not a virtue to celebrate the fact that a robber got a good haul. In that case, we are not happy that they got success or blessings or love or whatever you want to call it. We are not happy that the druggie scored good drugs. Those are harmful, and regardless of whether he thinks they feel good or not and they make him happy or not, we Christians are not called to affirm that. So this isn't a point where the problem we have is we just don't affirm everybody in what they do. The problem here is more being internal and the fact that I want it. Because to cut very deep, most of us have been in Sunday more than once. What is the core of the sin between Adam and God? What did Adam want? He wanted to be God. So think in this situation where Jesus, the very man who is God, is standing in the synagogue and teaching people, and what is every single person judging him with? He can't be God. I am. That's the whole point of the of the prodigal. 
of the older brother. You can't judge my brother and, and dispose of it like you're God. I am, and I choose he doesn't get forgiven. That's the whole point of the workers in the vineyard. God pays whatever he wants, and he doesn't care about your input, but the worker thinks he's the boss. So this reality check comes in that Jesus has what almost everybody in this synagogue wants. And so we get verse 3, and they took offense at it. But the amazing thing is how Jesus, in the rest of the Gospel of Mark, I, it's the wrong word, but I don't know another way to put it, disposes of what he has. How Jesus uses the fact that he is the God-man. And it is not in enlarging himself. It is not in telling these people out there to worship him. It is to spend himself and to give himself ultimately for others. For others to have success, for others to have blessing. And again, it's bad theology, but for others to have good luck. Because at the end of the day, the cross at the front of our sanctuary... Yes, God upholds justice, and I'll go to the back on that. But at the same time, it means in some ways, you're off the hook and you got away with it. Now repent and change the way you live it. So, one of the things I find that is interesting is Jesus wasn't good enough for these people, and in Luke, we have a kind of time together of all of this. Because if Daedalus pushed his apprentice off, Cliff that could have saved his son. It's interesting in the Gospel of Luke that the people take Jesus and they want to push him off a cliff. Just something fun to think about. Let us pray.